Hey everyone, welcome to this week's Power Hour podcast. We've got a great lineup, so let's get started. Good morning and happy new year. I'm Bill Miles with the Hilton Head Island Bluffton Chamber of Commerce, and we're delighted to have you tuning in with us this morning. I hope everyone had a wonderful holiday season. And here we are in, in 2022. It's hard to believe on January the 12th already. You know, we are, this will be our first power hour of, of 2022, and we launched it back in 2020 during the pandemic, and uh, it continues to be a, a great resource, we're told, so we continue to provide the information to you. As always, want to give a shout out as well to Scott Grooms and the Beaufort County Channel. Uh, they broadcast this production, and we were very, very appreciative of that. So today we're talking about where we are locally with Omicron and uh, also status of the US 278 quarter. And then we'll hear from Dr. Frank Rodriguez talking about the Beaufort County Schools. We've got a great lineup of guests this morning. Uh, the, first, the first guest that we had hoped to have was Joel Taylor, who's the market CEO of Hilton Head Regional Healthcare. Uh, unfortunately, Joel had another commitment and could not be with us. But I did ask him if he could pass along his hospitalization rates, which is something that uh, many are curious about locally, we know. So if you'll allow me, I would, I'm going to read uh, what Joel's statement is because he thought it was important to share the information as well. And uh, again, this is from Joel Taylor, Market Chief Executive Officer with Hilton Head Regional Healthcare. Within our hospitals, we have seen a substantial increase in emergency department visits, though Thankfully, fewer patients are requiring admission for COVID. Currently, there are 15 positive inpatients, with three of those in the ICU across our two hospitals. This is twice the number of patients we had as we ended 2021. Given a positivity rate of 30% in the patients we are testing, we are limiting visitation in our emergency departments, except in unique circumstances. We continue normal operations otherwise. Latest projections for South Carolina expect this surge to peak in mid to late January with numbers anticipated to decline rapidly soon. Thereafter, we are watching the local situation very closely and will adjust our plans and processes accordingly. Again, that statement from Joel Taylor and, and uh, we just thought it was important for us to be able to provide those numbers to you this morning, and we look forward to having Joel back on, on during our next uh, power hour. We continue to hear about pandemic protocols, and we know that those are changing quickly, and uh, here to discuss the latest data and research is uh, South Carolina DHEC epidemiologist, our good friend, Dr. Jane Kelly. Good morning, Dr. Kelly, and Happy New Year. Thank you so much. Happy New Year to you as well. Thanks again for inviting me. I did uh, prepare some slides, so let me go ahead and share those. I'm glad to, that you've given the report on the local hospital situation. I'm gonna take a little bit of a bigger picture looking at South Carolina and the United States as a whole. I'm sure everyone is aware of the surge of new cases, but I, it's really dramatic to see it visually this way as a graph. Again, those blue bars are the number of new cases in a single day, and we have repetitively hit the highest ever numbers of new cases. On Saturday, we had over 16,000 cases, 35% positive, 12 deaths. Sunday, more than 15,000, again, 30% positive, 30 deaths. And yesterday, over almost 13,000 cases, 29% positive and 12 deaths. And the reason I give the percent positive is an indicator of, are we seeing more cases because we're just doing so much more testing? If that were true, you would expect that percent positive to be very low, for example, less than 5%. The fact that a third of the people who we are testing turn out to be positive is worrisome. It implies that there are a lot more, even a lot more cases out there than we know about. And again, just to put in perspective, what do these numbers mean? Just a few weeks ago, prior to Thanksgiving, we averaged fewer than 600 new cases per day. And back in May, we were averaging fewer than 100 cases per day as a state as a whole. 
We've also seen a big difference, big trend in the number of cases in younger people. This is cases in ages five through 18 year olds in South Carolina since July 2021. So again, that that big surge is also a surge among youth. It's also a surge among people ages 20 through 40. This is not a big surge among older adults. Fortunately, just as was reflected in the local hospitalization, hospitalization situation for Beaufort County, we have had an increase in the number of people hospitalized on a ventilator in the intensive care unit, but it's not as high a surge as we are seeing for new cases. But nevertheless, if you have a lot more new cases, you're going to inevitably end up with more people in the hospital, more people in the emergency room department, and more people seeking treatment such as monoclonal antibodies in our clinics. And those outpatient clinics are beginning to feel the brunt of this, and some of them are feeling overwhelmed. In terms of vaccination in South Carolina, the top row or the percentage of people who've had at least a single dose of vaccine and the bottom row are people who have completed their vaccine series. So about 52% of everyone age five and up in South Carolina has completed vaccination. Uh, and among children five through 11 years old, they are eligible for the Pfizer vaccine, but only about 9% of them have completed that primary series. There's a lot of vaccine hesitancy. Vaccination is not the only tool in our toolkit, though arguably it's the most important one. There's also testing. Now, I know statewide right now it is a challenge getting tested. Uh, there is a shortage of at-home tests, uh, as well as long lines at testing centers. We are working hard to change that. We've got manpower shortages in DHEC as well. I remind people that 97% of the tests that are done in South Carolina are actually not done in our public health lab. They're done in private laboratories, but we're trying to ramp up our testing programs uh, statewide, as well as testing programs in schools. So right now, we have rapid tests, the Binex Now antigen and the QNAT test. That's like a PCR test in uh, 40 school districts, 13 charter schools with Binex and Q in 19 private schools. There's also a federal program, Operation ET, for expanded testing. And that is beginning to reach a few schools in the state. And we have a number of turnkey testing vendors who do full service PCR testing. They show up at the school and, uh, and test kids on a routine screening basis. So we have the tools to fight Omicron between vaccines, masks, and testing. But at the same time, we know we need to get children and adolescents back into school. And I think people are aware that there has been a recent change in the school guidance from CDC and, and DHEC, and I'm going to review that guidance. Part of the reason for changing this guidance is that number one bullet point, that urgency about keeping children and adolescents in school. So it's always a balancing act. This is not risk-free sending kids back to school a little bit earlier than we were doing previously. But the science shows that the most contagious period is two days before symptoms through three days afterwards. So if we do this carefully, it will be possible to send children and adolescents back to school in a lesser time frame for isolation and quarantine. Now, what do I mean by that? Let's go through what that guidance is. For isolation, this is for people who are infected with COVID-19 who have a positive test. And this goes for the children and adolescents, as well as for teachers and staff. Previously, the isolation recommendation was 10 days. 10 days you need to isolate from the onset of symptoms. Or so if you started having symptoms the day before you tested, your the clock would start ticking for that 10-day isolation when you had symptoms or when the test was performed if you didn't have any symptoms. And you could return, you know, discontinue isolation, return to your usual activities after that 10-day period if you had no fever and your symptoms were improved, not necessarily completely resolved, because we know some symptoms like a cough or a loss of taste or smell can persist for weeks. What is the new guidance? The new guidance, and this is specifically for the school setting for students as well as adults. If you're isolating because you tested positive, you can return 
after five days of isolation. Again, your symptoms have to be getting better. You have to have no fever for 24 hours, but critically, you have to wear a mask days six through 10. Now, I know some schools, some school districts, they uh, are not uh, paying much attention to wearing masks and there's no mask mandate, but this situation is different. If a child wants to return to school and will not wear a mask, they should isolate for a full 10 days. So that five days is only if you're able to wear a mask for days six through 10. And they do not need a negative test to return from school. The quarantine recommendations have also changed. It used to be the recommendation was a full quarantine, 14 days without testing. And that recommendation came from the fact that some people, a very small number, will be contagious, you know, will contract COVID as long as 14 days after they were exposed, a really long incubation period. But that's very few people. The other recommendations had been 10 days full quarantine. If you had no symptoms and no fever, you could go back to school without a test or seven days if you had a negative test performed at day five or later. This has changed. The recommendations now for quarantine all require that a person have no symptoms, and there are three options. The full quarantine is now 10 days instead of that 14 days, 10 days, and you don't need a test. It's not recommended for schools to use this except temporarily if they have substantial or high COVID transmission, because the five-day quarantine would get kids back to school faster and keep them in the classroom. The recommendation is five days from the last exposure, you know, when they were close contact to that case with a negative test performed on day four or five. The reason we say day four or five is because in some places we know it's been a challenge getting testing. So we want to give kids and parents more of an option to try and and get a test uh, and get the results. Again, if they return after quarantine, they must wear a mask for days six through 10. There's also something called a test to stay program. Some schools are planning to implement this where they routinely test students uh, twice a week. And this would be another option for quarantine. I'm not gonna say much about that right now because most schools are not doing this as yet. I think what's going to be the main uh, option for most schools is going to be that return to school after five days of quarantine. There are some people who don't need to quarantine at all. The people who do not need to quarantine are people who have no symptoms. They're close contact, but they have no symptoms and they are vaccinated. And by vaccinated, I mean 18 years old or older, maximally vaccinated, meaning that you've Fully, you know, you got your two doses of Pfizer, Moderna, or one dose of Janssen, and you got the booster. For the most children and adolescents in school, they're going to be five to 17 years old. They don't have to have a booster to avoid quarantine. We, we recommend that they get fully vaccinated, two doses of Pfizer vaccine, and get a booster when it's been five months afterwards. But they don't have to have that in order to avoid quarantine. There are some other groups of people that don't need to quarantine. If, for example, they had an infection without within the last 90 days, we know that they have good immune protection and are unlikely to be reinfected, so they don't need to quarantine. But again, all of these people have to wear a mask when they return to school. There are some other guidance updates in the school guidance, and I have a link on this slide that'll take you to the entire document. Schools are encouraged to accept at-home rapid tests results and to sign a form saying, I did this test, I'm, I'm being honest about the results. It's not an official DHEC form, it's just something that the schools would request if a child returns to school with an at-home negative rapid test. There's also some information about classroom outbreak definitions. An outbreak is if you've got a, a, a group, either a classroom or a cohort, like an athletic team or a club that consists of at least five people or more. It used to be that if you had three or more cases in a classroom within two weeks, it was an outbreak. The new definition is that if 20% or more of a class or a cohort is absent with COVID in a given day, then we ask the school to consider sending that entire classroom home. 
Again, it's a local decision of the schools. Schools may decide to go with that 10-day quarantine and not the five-day, and schools may decide not to declare something an outbreak. There are so many other considerations. I do want to say a little bit about Omicron specifically, because I know there's been a lot of talk in the, in the media and headlines about, oh, Omicron is milder, it's just more like a cold, uh, and that people should feel reassured by that. And some of that data comes from uh, graphs such as this and the experience in South Africa with Omicron. You can see by that orange line, that's the number of cases. And the purple line, it, dark purple line is deaths and the lighter purple line is hospitalizations. You can see in previous surges that those three things went together in terms of the height of the surge. But in the Omicron surge, all the way to the right, you can see cases have skyrocketed in South Africa, but hospitalizations and deaths, yes, they increased, but nowhere near as much as cases. But I would ask you to bear in mind a few things. This is a study that was published in the journal, the American Medical Association, where they were looking at the Omicron wave in South Africa compared to previous waves. And they made the point that by their data, in December last month, 44% of adults in South Africa were vaccinated. And there was evidence that more than half of the population had prior COVID. So it's not really fair to compare it to previous waves. You know, in previous waves, you had people who were not vaccinated and who didn't have any prior immunity to COVID. In this wave, it's not the same patient population. They're younger, they have fewer comorbidities like diabetes, and they had different immunity because they had prior infection or vaccination. And you may have also seen reports in the media about, oh, Omicron is different because it, it infects more of the, your nasal uh, respiratory, your upper respiratory system and doesn't get out, down in your lungs. Do you know what that study is based on? Those headlines are based on this study. This study is a study in Syrian golden hamsters, not in humans. These are hamsters where they're looking at the amount of virus in the nasal area, the nasal turbinates compared to the lungs. And they're looking at it from the wild type of variant, that WA, the beta variant and Omicron. These are not substantially different levels. And I'm not sure how much a study in hamsters translates to humans. So don't be too reassured that Omicron is as mild as some media is suggesting because Omicron is causing severe disease. Almost all of it though, is in people who are not vaccinated. So this graph is hospitalizations in the United States as a whole. So you can see all those surges. And yes, the number of hosp hospitalizations, you know, proportionately is less than the number of new cases. But I'd still remind you that right now, we have had the highest number of hospitalizations nationally higher than ever. You know, last year, 128,000 hospitalized patients was the peak. We have a new peak now, 145,982 hospitalized nationally. So I don't know that there is good evidence that Omicron itself is milder. However, there is good evidence that if you are vaccinated, you have much greater protection against the Omicron Delta. Vaccine does work against Omicron. Why do I say that? Well, let's also look at breakthrough cases. These are the number and proportion of people who have been fully vaccinated and then got COVID anyway. It's about 1.3% of people fully vaccinated in South Carolina who have had a breakthrough infection. But as you look across on the, that lower row, the percent of people fully vaccinated who are hospitalized or who died from COVID is really very small. What we are seeing are people in the hospital or dying of COVID who are unvaccinated. What about those people with the breakthrough infections though? Who are they? This is a study looking nationally of, at over a million people who were fully vaccinated and got COVID anyway. Who were they? They're looking specifically at people over age 18. So this study was not looking at children and it was looking at December, 2020 through October, 2021. So it doesn't include Omicron. But what they found was again, that severe COVID outcomes like hospitalization or ICU or death were really quite rare, a very small percentage. And the, the, who were these people? 
While the risk factors for severe outcomes, this is no surprise. People over age 65, people who are immunocompromised and have other underlying conditions, diabetes, chronic liver, lung, heart, or neurological disease. You know, almost 80% of the people who died had four or more of these conditions. A point I want to bring home is that vaccine does work against Omicron. The risk factors for severe COVID-19 among fully vaccinated are the risk factors we've always known all along for people who are, have multiple medical problems. And if you look historically, before we had vaccine, about 10 to 20% of COVID infections were hospitalized and about 2% died. But if you look at the people who are fully vaccinated, you know whether they're boosted or not in this study, they included both of them. That radically changes this equation. Before vaccine, one in about five to 10 people were hospitalized and one in 50 died. But among the people who are fully vaccinated, those numbers are one in 10,000 for hospitalization, one in 30,000 for death. I wanna finish with just talking a little bit about at-home testing because we do have some good news here. Beginning January 15th, people with private health insurance or a group health plan who purchase an at-home COVID-19 test that has been authorized, cleared, or approved by the FDA will be able to have those test costs covered by their plan or insurance. So insurance companies, health plans are required to cover up to eight free at-home tests per covered individual per month. So for example, family of four all on the same plan, you'd be able to get up to 32 tests a month covered by your health plan. You can either go online to order something or you can go to a pharmacy or a store, buy a test, either get it paid for upfront by your health plan or get reimbursed for this cost by submitting a claim. So folks on with private insurance or group health plan, it would behoove you to contact that plan and find out how to best do that with your particular plan or insurance. We have the tools for fighting Omicron. Omicron, it does spread more easily, but vaccine still works against it. Masks still works against it. Tests still pick it up. Uh, finish with my email. If you have any questions that we don't address today, you're welcome to email me directly, kellyjm1 at dhec.southcarolina.gov. Thank you. All right, Dr. Kelly, thank you so much for that inf informative presentation. Uh, as always, we have a few questions for you. And the first one, Dr. Kelly, is coming from Melvin. And Melvin's asking, are there variants on the horizon we should be concerned about? Not at this time. I know there has been some things in the news about uh, Delta Cron, I think it is called, and that's probably a lab aberration that there, there is not a new variant that has mutated to combine features of both Delta and Omicron. Um, you know, many of these variants have the same mutations. Omicron is different because it has more, more um, mutations and mutations that haven't been seen in combination before. But right now, uh, Omicron it has outcompeted other variants, so there aren't really any new variants on the horizon that I know of, but of course that could change at any time. Thank you for that answer. And Alex is asking if there are any new drug therapies coming out that you can tell us about. The, the, there is some talk about fluvoxamine. Um, so the current, what's currently available? monoclonal antibodies. There are three different ones. One of them is sotrovimab. That's the one that is supposed to be most effective against Omicron. The other two are less effective against Omicron. There are also two pills, Paxlovid and Malnupiravir. Those are out there, but they're in scarce supply and they have a number of different considerations like drug interactions. What else is on the horizon? Other things that are on the horizon is this particular antidepressant called fluvoxamine. It's already FDA approved for depression, obsessive compulsive disorder, but there's some evidence that not because of its antidepressant effect, but just some other ways where it interacts with certain cell receptors in the body, that it has some activity against uh, the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And that has been submitted to the FDA under an EUA, an emergency use authorization. So we may be hearing about that in a few weeks. The nice thing about that is that we have many, many years of experience with that medication. So we know what its side effect profile is and doesn't have a lot of side effects. Uh, it's a pill, so it could be taken as outpatient. Um, and uh, it is effective 
uh, in reducing risk of hospitalization. I'm sure there are other things. Everybody is looking for antivirals that would work against uh, SARS-CoV-2, but I think there's nothing else close to being uh, submitted for EUA at this time. Oh, I should mention one other thing. I'm sorry. Remdesivir. Remdesivir is an IV treatment that has is used in the hospital, but it's now also uh, being used as an outpatient treatment. The challenge there is it's an IV and it's uh, an IV medication that's given three days in a row. So it's even more complicated than the monoclonal antibodies because you have to give somebody in IV three days in a row, but that might work, for example, in a nursing home setting where somebody is an inpatient anyway. Thank you, Dr. Kelly. Kim is asking for reimbursement. Can you submit previous previous purchase tests? I wish. No, unfortunately, it's beginning January 15th. We've had several questions uh, regarding testing, but I think you've provided the answers for those uh, already. So once again, uh, thank you for being with us. And as always, as Dr. Kelly said, she shared her email and uh, she is very, very responsive. I can assure you of that. Dr. Kelly, have a great rest of your day and thanks again for being with us. Thank you for inviting me. All right. I do want to remind you that uh, as far as testing goes locally, the town of Hilton Head Island and, and Bright Star Care are offering free COVID testing from 9 to 3.30 p.m. Tuesday through Saturday at Chaplin Community Park. And then also DHEC is te holding testing from 8.30 to 3.30 p.m. on Mondays at Fire Station 4, which is 400 Squire Pope Road. And then I'll also just encourage you to remember that uh, local pharmacies, urgent cares um, are, are doing testing as well and don't hesitate to, to use them if needed. We'll transition now and switch gears. And uh, if you're curious on what's the latest at about 278 or uh, what the feedback has been from the public and when will the project get started and our next guests, uh, they certainly have those updates with us. We're proud and pleased to have Craig Wynn, who's the program manager for SCDOT with us along with Jared Fralix. And Jared is the assistant administrator of engineering for Beaufort County to give us the latest update. Craig, Jared, Welcome, and uh, thank you for dialing in and being with us today. Great, Bill. Thanks, uh, thanks for having us. And I think Craig uh, looks like his video is coming on still, so I'll talk a little bit to start with and then bounce it over to Craig. Um, yeah, Jared, I yeah, just want to pause. My video is not working. I can't get the camera to come up. I'm trying, but it will not pop up. Well, fortunately, Craig, we've seen you a lot, so we, we got a good idea of what you look like um, <laughs> and we can hear you. So I'll talk a little bit and hand it off to you, Craig. Um, but first, Bill, just uh, thank you for having us. Um, I want to express that we are working full speed ahead on this. I know it seems like a very slow and long and drawn out process, and that is a fair assessment. It, it actually is. Uh, but with most good things, it takes time to develop as with this. This is, again, basically a quarter of a billion dollar project. So uh, there's a lot of partners involved, a lot of stakeholders involved, um, and a lot of approval agencies that we have to ensure that we meet all their guidelines and specifications through the project. So um, I'll talk about uh, kind of one thing that's been on mind is IGA agreement with SIB, and I'll talk about that real briefly and then hand it over to Craig um, as far as where we are status and what our next steps are. Uh, one thing I do want to reiterate about this, and especially as it relates to the, the SIB grant and the SIB IGA that has currently uh, been work in the works recently, is this is a county-sponsored project. So uh, the county is the one that, that put this project together and came up with the vision and said, hey, this is where we're heading. This is what we would like to do. And along the way, we coordinated with stakeholders, and that being... Uh, the town of Hilton Head, obviously, and then DOT. So DOT had a current project that they were going to work on on replacing one of the four spans of the bridges. Uh, and we said, hey, let's not stop there. Let's take it, take it and make it bigger and replace all the bridges as well as extend it to some logical termini on both ends, on Bluffton and Hilton Head End. So uh, again, we sponsored the project. Uh, we, we put it out as far as the 2018 sales tax, and since then have been applying for funds, uh, coordinating with, with stakeholders, 
And um, as, as I'll talk about with the IGA, um, these are basically grant funds that we have from the state South Carolina SIB, State Infrastructure Bank. So just like any other grant that, that you apply for, um, the grants are applicable for certain activities. They, they come with their own arrangements as far as what the restrictions are, timelines, commitments, dates, and such. And that is no different than, than this grant that we have, the $120 million with the SIP. So just a little back history on that. We applied for this grant first in July of 2019. Uh, we prepared the grant documentation and presented it to the SIB. Um, at that time, um, they did not take it up immediately for hearing. They had a couple additions. And then eventually we were invited for uh, in-person interview in July of 2020, July 7th, 2020. So that's when they officially heard and voted on the civil war of which we were awarded that document, uh, that award grant of $120 million. Uh, from that, then we started coordinating with their staff and their legal team to develop a, an agreement on the grant that we proposed as far as the timeline and schedule and financial commitments that were part of the application. So during that process, we started coordinating with their legal team and drafting that policy. Um, at the same time, concurrently, and Craig and their team uh, as consultants to the county were managing the, are managing the environmental assessment process and working towards a public hearing. So um, as, as we were developing the agreement with the SIB, um, they were also watching what was taking place here locally and making sure that the project is something that, that is moving forward and that their grant funds would not be at risk. Uh, so they were very involved in listening on how the environmental assessment process has been ongoing and panning out. So initially, uh, the agreement was not codified at that time because they wanted to have a higher level of comfort of where the project stood. So during the course of the year, last year in 2021, uh, we had to give them updates periodically, say, hey, this is where we are, this is the next step, this is what will be happening, and we did such. Um, after the public hearing last July, um, again, they, they had a greater level of understanding and, and development of the project, and so we continue to coordinate on the agreement. Um, since then, uh, we've gone back and forth more recently over the course of October, November, and even into December to finalize those uh, arrangements and basically reiterate um, what was in the application and update specifically the financial component. Uh, what they're most concerned is that this project is gonna, gonna get completed and, and funded. They only have $120 million, whether the project costs 250 or 350. Um, it's scoped out at 289 million, but that's a commitment that we as the county um, are at risk for because we are the sponsor of the project. And we accept that risk, we acknowledge that risk, um, but that's what we're working closely with DOT and their experience <coughs> to help us facilitate that. DOT has also been helpful to help, um, they took a, look, a closer look at what their costs were, planned for their bridge replacements and had done some updates on their side. So again, um, it seems like, I know there's been discussion about the cost of the project escalating, but at the very onset uh, of the sales tax and then also at the application of the SIB, we had a range of alternatives at that time. Um, and depending on which alternative proved most beneficial, the preferred alternative was what the final dollar cost was. So as we got to July last year, to the public hearing, we were getting to that preferred alternative and getting to what that actual dollar figure is. So it's not as if the project has grown in scope, is we just had a parameters, it's anywhere between this cost and that cost, say 200 million and 400 million, depending on which alternative was selected. Based off the preferred alternative, the cost is 289 million, of which the SIP is again at $120 million. So we finalized that uh, here recently um, with the SIB and, and codified that both on our side through council action and, and their side as far as final uh, signature and actually received that this week back from them. So 
it's hot off the press. I know it's been something out there, but I just wanted to hit that uh, head on prior to Craig kind of giving an update about where we're heading with the actual next step in coordinating the project and coordinating with the public. So Craig. All right, thank you, Jared. Um, I kind of want to go back a little bit since it's been a while just to discuss you know, the public hearing. We received um, 546 comments at the in the public comment period at the public hearing. Um, a lot of those were, and you know, the top ones were some left turn elimination. There were some against widening, uh, preserving goal of heritage, um, protecting the natural environment, um, people in favor of the signal at Windmill Harbor, um, biking pads. Those were kind of the, the, the highlights of ones that were you know, kind of at the top. So um, part of what we've been doing over the last few months is going through and responding to, to the comments. And all the comments have been sent out to everybody that commented whether if, they, if we had an email address, they went out by email. If we had a only had a, a home address, they we sent out physical letters. Um, all of those went out around Christmas and New Year's, um, kind of spread out over the over that time frame. Um, so the other thing we've been working on is evaluating the recommendations from MKSK. Um, we do anticipate having an additional public information meeting uh, probably sometime in March. So we're working towards um, looking at those recommendations, responding to those, seeing what, what can be incorporated, what, you know, what makes sense for, from a um, NEPA perspective or you know, environmental perspective. So you know, no matter what, how we look at it, we still have to have the least impactful practical alternative. So we have to look at balancing the impacts and you know, one of the things that was brought up in that was to look at the, the intersections between um, Squire Pope Road and Spanish Falls Road or the Cross Island Parkway. So kind of where we're sitting at right now is we've basically finalized as far as the NEPA document between Windmill Harbor and Moss Creek and Bluffton. So we're really looking at Moss, from um, Gateway Drive, um, Windmill Harbor area, the Spanish walls, looking at those recommendations from MKSK, whether you know some of that's to me looking at meandering the road, looking at other intersection types. So, you know, when we did the intersections, we did we looked at 21 different intersection types. Um, we picked the one that had the least impacts, but it also had the best traffic performance. So now we're going back to look at, um, and the reason we had to look at the least impactful intersection alternative and the Stony community qualifies as a traditional cultural property. So that's, um, they get additional protections from, from federal highways. So as part of that is we have to have concurrence from the State Historical Preservation Office. Um, we had concurrence from the Gullah Geechee Heritage Corridor and from federal highways on the impacts and the lease impacts. So as we've gone back and looked at additional intersections, um, we anticipate, you know, looking, we're looking at traffic performance, but also impacts the traditional cultural property. Um, and then we'll, we're hopeful to have the responses. Jared and I are going to start working on the responses back to MKSK and town of Hilton Head over the next couple of weeks. So the, the goal would be to have those responses by the end of the month and then having that public meeting in early March. That would, and then that would lead us to having a finding of no significant impact from federal highways by the end of June. And at that point, we would be able to um, head, head towards right-of-way plans with a, with a goal of construction still in late 2023, early 2024. Um, still working with our consulting partners on this to, to make that goal a reality and, and doing all the work that we can right now up front to help us um, to get there, looking at some preliminary bridge work um, our bridge alternate, you know, um, bridge design to you know start that process because really, that's going to be the longest lead time is getting getting the bridge designed over the next you know couple of years. Um, the other thing, you know, is you know that public really that public information meeting is just going to be to, it's going to be a smaller type meeting. Um, we anticipate it hopefully being at the Island Rec Center again, um, and basically we're going to present the changes from. The preferred alternative that was released at the public hearing to the preferred alternative that the refined preferred alternative that will become 
or the the it will become the refined preferred alternative, and that's what we will carry forward um, to construction plans and, and right away acquisition. So, um, and the biggest thing we're looking at the intersections is adding the left turns back in at Sparrows Wells and Squire Pope Road, but also looking at potentially eliminating the acceleration lane that came off of Scar Pope Road onto westbound 278 to try to reduce the frontage impacts within the Sony community there. Um, and one way that, you know, we've kind of, uh, looking at reducing some of that is reduced lane widths. Um, that, that's a big one through Stony is trying to, to go, just reduce it down just, to, just enough to, you know, where we still meet federal standards, state standards, but to give us a little more, um, a little less impact through there. We can, you know, go from 12 foot lanes down to 11 foot lanes. Uh, for a couple of the lanes through there. Um, Jerry, did you have anything else to add to that as we, on the MKSK stuff that we looked at? No, so I think, uh, again, that was probably the biggest complaint or biggest uh, response that we received in the public hearing and even with the town is the left turn at Squire Pope and Spanish Wells. And we're working to find a resolution that meets both the need at the local level as well as the need at the federal level and, and the uh, cultural impact level so trying to um thread a, a needle through a haystack i mean thread a needle um is is kind of what we're working towards um but we're up for the challenge up for the opportunity the good thing is long-term project overall we're still on track with our overall um, project schedule as submitted um, as part of our application in the sib grant which has a full completion of the project uh, by the end of 2028 I know that sounds like a long time, but with all the design and uh, and the construction time to build this massive project, um, that's still intact, and that's what we're marching to. So, Bill, I think that kind of gives a good update of where we are. And if there's any questions, we we gladly take any. All right, Jared and Craig, thank you so much for that uh, update. Certainly, uh, lots of things going on there, and and lots of parts to, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, unpack as we go forward. A few questions for you. The first one's coming from Joe. And Joe is asking, what is the status of the four intersection projects that are part of the 278 corridor project? Example, the intersection at 278 and 46. 278 and 46. Um, I don't know that that intersection is part. Craig, are you familiar what that question would be? Um, that that is not part of the project that's further up on 278 on in Bluffton. So okay. uh, thank you for that. And then uh, uh, Melissa is asking: Is the light at Windmill Harbor still part of the plan? Yes. Okay. Um, and then if you just, I know you've. We've had a question about the start and completion dates. I know you covered that in the presentation, but if you just go over that uh, one more time uh, for our listeners, please. So, Jared, I'll, um, you know, as part of the the SIM agreement, is the start date for construction is twenty twenty four, completion date by the end of twenty twenty eight. So that that that's that's what we're marching towards. Okay, guys, thank you so much. Appreciate you being with us. And uh, thanks for moving the project forward. And we look forward to hearing more in the future. All right, thank you guys. Be flat. We're hearing a, a lot of news about uh, schools around the country and how they're learning remotely, as well as some that are in the classroom. And so we thought it'd be helpful to uh, uh, for you to hear what's happening in Beaufort County. And to, to do that, no, but no finer person that updates on that than our good friend, Dr. Frank Rodriguez, who's the superintendent of Beaufort County Schools. Dr. Rodriguez, Happy New Year, and thanks Happy for being New with Year us. To you. Thank you. Thank Happy you. New Year to you and everyone on the call, and thank you for, for having me. It's always a pleasure to speak here and uh, take the opportunity to share with you about uh, what's happening in our schools. And Bill, as you correctly pointed out, uh, there are many school districts across the country that opted to start the new year in a fully virtual mode. Um, you know, there's uh, all, all sorts of different things happening out there, but there are a lot that, that went to fully virtual. Um, I'm happy to share with you that we opted to um, open our school year face-to-face -face here in January. Uh, we know that uh, 
we're, we're dealing with the challenges of the virus, just like we did last year, uh, I'm sorry, in August at the beginning of the year. And, and we continue to, to, to deal with that, uh, but we are open five days a week, face-to-face -face instruction. Um, and, and we face those challenges. You know, our, our, our goal is to keep school open for, for our students for face-to-face -face instruction, because we know that that's how they learn best. Uh, and so um, there are challenges associated with it, which I'll talk about in a minute, but, uh, but that is what we're trying to, uh, to accomplish and, and to maintain. So um, one of the biggest challenges, to be honest with you, that we face is that uh, uh, guidance and regulations around how you operate uh, and protocols uh, shifts and changes, right? And so that's something that we have to be flexible with and shift and adapt to it. And, and I think what I, what I want parents and community members to understand is that the information that DHEC uh, provides us in the school and childcare exclusion list uh, it's not just a recommendation. We are required to follow uh, that information. And so, uh, so we, we do that. We put those protocols in place uh, based on that. Uh, for example, uh, I heard er, just briefly earlier today uh, from DHEC, they were talking about uh, the changes in the isolation period. And so the isolation period reduced from 10 days to five days uh, if no symptoms uh, for, uh, for students or if symptoms had improved. DHEC requires um, that if students came back uh, from day six through 10, uh, you heard them mention earlier that, that they wear a mask. So the quarantine period has also been reduced to five days uh, with a test and uh, with a negative test, excuse me, and uh, if no symptoms were present uh, during that period. And so regardless of uh, the, the uh, vaccination status, uh, DHEC requires that if you were exposed um, that through day 10, um, that they would wear a mask when they return to school. So we've updated our, our protocols. We've, we've shared that information with, uh, with our families and, and our parents. Um, uh, when students are out for COVID related, they, uh, dual modality is, is available. Um, it's our goal again, to keep our schools open. The challenge is, and, and, and the challenge we will face uh, and is, is around staffing, right? If staff is out uh, due to COVID and, and then that hampers our ability to operate safely, then we would have to uh, shift to a remote uh, uh, style of learning. Or if, um, uh, you know, infection rates within the school reach too, too high of a level, then, then we would have to uh, shift to remote learning. Or as you heard them, them talk about, uh, issues related to within individual classrooms, we would have to do that on case-by-case -case scenarios. But our goal would be not to shut down an entire system, but to focus specifically wherever the issue is. So if it's at one particular school, that we would handle it within that particular school, as opposed to uh, shifting an entire school district to, uh, to remote learning. So um, that's the approach that we'd be taking. I want to take a moment really to thank all of our uh, our school teachers and administrators, as well as our parents and students uh, for the flexibility and really dedication to keeping the learning uh, moving forward for our children. And thank you for the opportunity to speak and, and share information with you here today. Thank you, Dr. Rodriguez. Our first question is coming from John and John's asking what percentage of Beaufort County School District students don't have broadband internet at home? Yep, so that is uh, one of the, the challenges we also face with that. Uh, but we, we have what we call MiFi devices, which uh, we issue to students who don't have uh, a broadband uh, at home available to them. And as long as they have uh, cell service in their area, then they can, they can utilize that device. And that device actually would link up to about uh, 10, 10 computers through it. Uh, in order to provide them with the Wi-Fi access uh, that they would need. But uh, we have, there are pockets across the, the county uh, that, that uh, are what I would call blank spots where, where uh, we don't see uh, the Wi-Fi access. I will tell you that um, we had very little Wi-Fi devices that were checked out by students. Very few of them were checked out. 
we have plenty, uh, we believe, uh, to go around if needed, but, uh, but, but students were not checking them out. So, um, so the specific number of individual cases at home that don't have a, a broadband, I don't have that information. Number. All right. Thank you, Dr. Rodriguez. Uh, Ellis is asking if students who are out quarantining, if they're learning online during that period. Yes. The answer is yes. Great. Paul, uh, that's what we call a dual modality, which is where the teacher in the classroom um, um, can work with the students that are in front of them and the child that's at home quarantining can zoom in remotely. And so that's the uh, that's the dual modality uh, availability. Mark is asking if you're having trouble finding substitute teachers. That, that that's a pre-pandemic problem for schools. That is a pandemic problem for schools, and will probably be a post-pandemic problem for schools. So uh, so uh, if anybody is interested, this is a uh a recruitment effort here uh let us know if you're interested in in substituting and and we can make that we can make that work uh we have a company we contract with which is uh ess and, and they handle all of our substitutes so we would be able to put you in contact with them if that is of interest dr rodriguez i i have to compliment you this morning on uh, i see the school's logo there and yes sir uh, your yellow tie and your blue shirt and uh, certainly certainly matches the logo and you're very well color coordinated today. Thank you, sir. <laughs> All right, Dr. Rodriguez, thank you for being with us. We appreciate the, the update and the uh, great job you do with the Beaufort County School System. Thank you very much. Appreciate you all and everyone have a happy new year. Be safe. All right, that was Dr. Rodriguez. A few things to mention, uh, Chamber Restaurant Week is just around the corner. It would, it'll run from January the 29th to February the 5th, and we're adding menus daily. So I'd encourage you to go to uh, chamberrestaurantweek.com and look at some of the latest menus and see where you uh, uh, want to dine during that, that during that week and support Chamber Restaurant Week. Got to give a huge shout out to uh, Zach and Kimberly Shedd. Zach's a teammate of ours here at the Chamber, and uh, Zach and Kimberly over the holidays had a new baby, a new baby boy, and uh, uh, Brady Wayne Shedd is now um, uh, the, the proud new baby for Zach and Kimberly. So congratulations to them. Also, can't let the moment pass without uh, today, January the 12th, is my wife Debbie's birthday. So got to give a shout out to her. Happy birthday, dear. And I know she's listening and watching and, and uh, we'll celebrate today. And then also, please mark your calendars for February the 2nd. And that's our, uh, that'll be our next power hour. And so to please tune into that. And I'd like to also ask you, thank, first of all, thank those who have uh, sent questions in this morning. We always appreciate those and, and so do our speakers. And then if you, there are other topics that you would like for us to cover, please email us and uh, let us know. And we'll certainly uh, try to arrange speakers for those topics that you would like to hear more about. So we look forward again to seeing you again on uh, February the 2nd. And then as, uh, as always, stay safe, be kind, and don't forget to love each other. Have a great day. Thanks everybody for listening to the Chamber Channel's Power Hour. We encourage you to tune in for future episodes. Never miss one by subscribing to our channel on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts.